census? Ah, the census is a special time when we count every single person in the country. Do kids and babies count too? Of course. Counting everyone in your home helps support your neighborhood by funding schools, hospitals, and more. So complete the census by calling, going online, or returning your form by mail. It's totally private. Visit 2020census.gov and make, make your family count. count. Brought to you by Carnegie Corporation of New York and the Ad Council. Only four teams have survived the World League season and advanced to the next round. The high-scoring Orlando Thunder. The defensive-minded European champions from Barcelona. Sacramento won the divisional war and advanced from the West. Yes, baby, great catch! And the only team to have beaten the other three, the Birmingham Fire. Now it's playoff time, and the Fire, despite its victories over the other contenders, advanced as the wildcard team. Their ground control offense is powered by running back Elroy Harris. The Thunder enter the playoffs as the league's Eastern Division champions. Their high-powered, wide-open offense is led by quarterback Scott Mitchell, whose future lies with the Miami Dolphins. His favorite target is Redskins property Joe Howard Johnson, who has tallied five touchdowns on the year. It's the World League playoffs, the Birmingham Fire, and the Orlando Thunder next on USA. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, everybody. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon. Of course, this is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is consistently and constantly and uh, never-ending focused on uh, what used to be in professional sports. Yeah, that's our genre. That's our little niche. That's our... That's our little uh, curiosity that uh, we try to poke around each and every week. Uh, we try to discern uh, the various stories and uh, histories and uh, intrigue around teams and leagues and all those kinds of things in pro sports that, for whatever reasons, are no longer with us. Uh, it has uh, been a long journey. We're kind of rounding three and a half years and, and then some, uh, and uh, there just seems to be no end to uh, the various topics that sort of lay in this uh, ever-widening niche, it would seem, uh, around our little uh, defunct and uh, previously domiciled and and related uh, stories uh, in the realm of pro sports. We, uh, we're back into football this week. We're uh, happily so. Uh, and uh, the little audio uh, clip that you heard at the uh, top of the show uh, hopefully gives you some kind of indication of where we're headed this week. Uh, in particular, we're going down south to Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama, of course, uh, and the clip. Let's talk about that. 1992 was the year, uh, May 30th to be specific in 1992, the USA Cable Network, and that was the uh, dulcet tones of one young Ted Robinson, uh, calling a World League of American football game between the Birmingham Fire and the Orlando Thunder. Remember all them? Yes, that was the playoffs, uh, the second and only, uh, second year uh, of the two years of the original version of the World League of American Football, those two years being the ones that included actual teams in the United States. And two of those teams, Birmingham and Orlando at that time, uh, playing a playoff game. And it turned out that uh, Orlando would just 
pummel uh, Birmingham in this game, a uh, 45 to 7 crushing of the fire. Uh, And of course, that turned out to be the Birmingham Fire's last ever game in the World League of American Football, completing a two year run. Not a bad season this 1992 for Birmingham. A 7-2-1 regular record, although there were a number of teams that had some some pretty good records around that level. Uh, but it is an example of the one, well, not the, the one, but one of many teams that called Birmingham home in the realm of, let's call them, challenger football leagues. Uh, we get into this conversation, this topic, uh, and it's very intriguing, as you can imagine, whether you grew up in Birmingham uh, just a fan of football in general or not, with our pal Scott Adamson. He, a longtime sports writer, not only in the Birmingham area, but across the South, I think is uh, currently in the South Carolina region. I think he's written there as well. Uh, he's got a tremendous website at adamsonmedia.com, uh, where he blogs uh, since his semi-retirement from the daily grind of newspaper writing. And one of the passions that he has and we get into why and how in, in this conversation, is this fascination with pro football of the, let's call it the challenger or off-brand variety. Birmingham constantly on the short list uh, as recently as the uh, uh, Alliance of American Football last year, the Birmingham Iron for their less than one season. Uh, but dating all the way back to as we'll talk about with Scott in a few moments, the World Football League, right? Uh, the came a calling uh, as that league was getting up and running. Gary Davidson and his uh, his crazy crew working on uh, rustling up some franchises and challenging the NFL like he was doing with all these other leagues too and other sports. Birmingham, right? A, a cradle of football passion, certainly at the collegiate level, and, and you know uh, certainly UAB now, but obviously longstanding with Auburn and. And Alabama and the Iron Bowl, all that stuff, right? Uh, certainly, high school football and 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 you know just seemed to be a uh, and continues, frankly, to seem to be uh, a, uh, a a a fertile uh, area for for various exploits in pro football. The World Football League uh, came a knocking, uh, as it did with uh, fledgling, uh, shall we call them, underserved pro football markets like Memphis. Uh, and uh, and Orlando via the Florida Blazers and, and a bunch of others, right? Uh, and we've seen Birmingham uh, not only in the two, yes, there were two versions of the WFL in Birmingham, those being the uh, Americans and then the Vulcans in their second uh, incarnation or season. But, but even beyond that, other leagues kept on coming and calling and knocking on the door of Birmingham to be part of their enterprises as well. So after the demise of the World Football League, well, who came a calling? But the USFL, right? Very successful league that uh, only lasted three years. And we've gone into a whole bunch of different conversations uh, around that. Please indeed check them out. But for three years, the Stallions were quite the thing. They were one of the strongest franchises uh, in the USFL. Very well supported. Uh, the Birmingham Fire, as we just uh, alluded to, a two-year enterprise in the World League of American Football, the first two years of that league's existence and the only two years that had teams not only in Europe and, and in, uh, in Canada and Montreal, but in the United States, including, of course, the Birmingham Stallions. Uh, excuse me, not the Stallions, the Birmingham Fire. Sorry, Stallions or USFL. It's hard to keep up with them, of course. That's part of the story. And that's not even including, of course, what came later in the Canadian Football League. We talked about the Birmingham Barracudas 
as part of our uh, conversations uh, with Ed Willis and a few others, we talked about the Canadian Football League's, uh, shall we say, dalliance uh, in uh, bringing various teams to the United States for a couple of seasons. Birmingham was one of those, the Barracudas. People uh, have some fond memories of that, even though they only lasted one season. And if that weren't enough, what about the old uh, original XFL from 2001? Remember the Thunderbolts? Well, people in Birmingham do. And so does Scott Adamson, our guest this week. Uh, And he has encapsulated it all in, uh, again, his new book, The Home Team, My Bromance with Off-Brand Football. This is a tremendous chat. We get into why people are intrigued with, you know, consistently ongoing efforts to challenge the NFL with pro football leagues. Uh, But I think growing up and living and writing and and, uh, understanding Birmingham especially, why is this city constantly on the shortlist? It's got to be some goodness to it. Why is it constantly disappointed, I guess, when these leagues and, and maybe the teams themselves somehow just dissipate? And frankly, why can't Birmingham yet again make it on the radar for, let's say, the next uh, version of the XFL when it gets up and running? Uh, I got to think Dwayne Johnson and his team, his former wife, et cetera, have to be looking at Birmingham anew. I mean, the iron uh, in the AAF were uh, a, a pretty good team. I think they were done in by some bad weather for their games. But, you know, I think Birmingham is a pro football market or a football market beyond just its collegiate uh, roots, uh, I think is absolutely very much uh, alive and kicking, so to speak. Although, you know, we can talk about whether pro leagues in football should exist. Uh, there's been a, you know, there's been a, a litany of them that have not made it. Uh, it doesn't seem to stop people from uh, continuing to try. We get into all of that and more with our guest this week, Scott Adamson. We're talking about pro football of an off-brand variety in general, but in Birmingham specifically, and all of it, endlessly interesting and uh, a wonderful conversation. Please stick around for it in a few moments' time. And uh, what better sponsor this week than one of our newest uh, that is so exceedingly relevant. Uh, and that's 417 Helmets. 417 Helmets. That's 417. The number is 417helmets.com. Promo code Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Our pal Judd Lasher is the uh, extraordinary guy behind this wonderful site uh, that, that is specifically focuses on these beautifully handcrafted mini football helmets. They are, are smart looking. Uh, they're wonderful additions to your uh, your sports collection, uh, your man cave, uh, whatever football team on the collegiate level, uh, the uh, uh, lower division collegiate level, the pro level, and especially the forgotten teams from the various leagues that have come and gone in football, including, of course, all of the Birmingham teams that we just mentioned. So do you want to find some great, high-quality crafted mini helmets from the Birmingham Vulcans of the WFL or the their predecessor, the Birmingham Americans of the WFL? You'll find them there at 417helmets.com. We weren't around during the 70s and, and you only kind of got into off-brand football during the 1980s. How about the USFL Birmingham Stallions mini helmet? How about the World League of American Football Birmingham Fire Helmet? Very 
colorful as all those teams were in that league. You can find that there at 417helmets.com. And of course, the Barracudas of the one-year experiment in the United States, at least for them, and the CFL, that helmet is there as well, as, as is the original XFL Birmingham Thunderbolts version. All of those and more. You name the teams, you name the leagues, they're probably there, and you're going to find them all in the highest of quality form at 417helmets.com. Again, 417helmets.com. Use that promo code GOODSEATS and receive, courtesy of Judd and ourselves, 10% off each and every purchase uh, that you make. And again, one last time, 417helmets.com. Thank you, Judd. It's cool stuff, and uh, I uh, highly encourage you to check it out, and the holidays are coming. And what better way to celebrate and uh, your football fandom than by getting a, a more than a handful of mini helmets from 417helmets.com. Okay, let us uh, move along and let's get into our chat, a fun chat. We get into Birmingham and football and the defunct leagues uh, that, uh, that comprises the book that's called The Home Team, My Bromance with Off-Brand Football. Here's our chat with Scott Adamson we had just last week. Please, as always... Enjoy. Why don't you, so uh, you, you know the drill, I think, with this uh, silly little show that we've been doing for uh, oh, approaching four years now, believe it or not. Um, wow, but, that's great. Well, I, I don't know how great it is. It's certainly, uh, but it's, it's, it's certainly interesting. Um, but it, it is, it does speak to something that uh, is um, very real for a lot of people. And that's, uh, sort of this uh, romance, or as you call it, subtitled bromance with teams and, and leagues that have come and gone for whatever reasons that, that have crossed our individual or collective radars. Why don't you, before we go any into the, your specific story and all this stuff, why don't you give our audience a bit of background about what qualifies you to talk about the topic at hand, uh, because you've been covering sports as a part of your profession for quite some time, and uh, I think it's very relevant. Sure. Um, you know, actually, when the World Football League, I, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, for starters. So naturally, if you grow up in Alabama, especially in the in the 1960s, if you were a sports fan, it was basically either Alabama or Auburn. And, and there was minor league baseball, but certainly in a football crazy state like Alabama, college football was huge. So that was really the big deal, I think, for for most people that lived in Alabama. But for me. For whatever reason, I had a real obsession with professional football and specifically the American Football League. There was just something great and fun about it for this, you know, I'm this little kid and I'm just fascinated that are, you know, there are guys who are like in their mid twenties that are playing football and they're making money for it. And it just, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So I, I became a Jets fan. And I think probably part of the reason was Joe Namath was the quarterback. He played at Alabama. So that sort of, set the stage for that. But I just really liked the pro game. And living in Birmingham, I just never really thought that Birmingham would be part of the pro football world. I just thought, you know, we were, we're a small town and Atlanta has the NFL, New Orleans has the NFL, and it's just not going to happen for Birmingham. So when the World Football League came along in 1974, and I'm a 13-year-old kid, that's the biggest deal in the history of the world. You know, I'm just stunned that Birmingham has professional football. So I learned everything I could about the team, fell in love with the WFL, and 
you know, like a lot of 13-year-olds, I don't really think you're thinking about financing. So so I wasn't terribly worried that the World Football League was going to go under or anything of that nature. But, of course, I found out pretty quickly that finances were a big part of professional football. And um, But still, I love that team. They won the championship. And then the next year, you know, the Americans folded actually with the entire – a lot of people don't think realize that the WFL actually folded – in 1974 and was reformed and came back in 1975. It was still called the WFL, but I think officially it was New League Incorporated. So they came back with the Birmingham Balkans that year. And it just, step by step from then on, you went from the World Football League to the USFL to the World League. And I just followed all these teams starting as a kid fan, working my way up to where I actually got into the sports writing business in the late 80s and ended up covering some of these teams. So I ended up writing a book about it, which sort of, I think, takes everyone on the journey that people go through from being a a young person who's heavily into sports, and then you just follow it throughout your life. Because the, the timeline of the book literally takes me from the time that I'm an early teen up into my 50s. So it was it was something that I wanted to do and then finally got a chance to do it when I uh, when I retired from newspaper work back in 2017. All right. And and for the audience, where was that newspaper work? You were in a couple of places, uh, regionally, locally, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I start um, I started uh, my newspaper career in 1987 in a place, uh, Talladega, Alabama, which is better known for racing. It's about 50 miles from Birmingham. But I spent the first 16 years of my newspaper career in Alabama and the last 14 in South Carolina. So I was kind of a long distance um, Birmingham sports fan, you know, for the last decade and a half or so. But yeah, my entire uh, sports writing career was, was spent in those two states. Well, you know, it's interesting, the, um, you know, the 13 year old memories, right? So that's certainly a theme uh, that has come up uh, more often uh, than not around uh, first person uh, stories, conversations that we've had. Uh, and, you know, uh, frankly, it actually traces back to maybe uh, it took me a while to sort of figure this out. My uh, uh, similar uh, situation, but mine was NASL soccer. We'll get to that part in a minute later. Um, but, you know, I grew up in the North, northern New Jersey area, the New York Cosmos or the Cosmos after they moved to New Jersey. Uh, that sort of proverbially once in a lifetime, all that uh, assemblage of at the time, probably the world's best uh, players and, and the Warner communication. I mean, it's all kinds of stuff, right? Um, but that was around my impressionable time growing up as a sports fan. Right? I still was a Giants fan and a Yankees fan and, you know, all the sort of uh, all-American stuff. I even long suffered as a New Jersey Nets fan for whatever reasons. But, right, but it it, it, it does, there's something about, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but, you know, these sort of traditional red-blooded American, you know, youth male, you know, and I'm not exclusivizing anybody or any any group, right? But it, there is something about that period of time in one's preteen years, I guess, uh, who, who, if you're especially male and you're especially interested and or playing or whatever, otherwise aware of sports and the professional versions of that in and around your region, that somehow ingratiates its way into your psyche. Well, that's where I, where I always envied 
people like yourself who did grow up in major league areas, you know, because you didn't have that in Birmingham. You know, I was always jealous that you could look at Atlanta and there were the Braves in baseball and the Falcons in football. And then, you know, the New Orleans with the state with the saints, but in Birmingham, you didn't have that. So anytime something came to town, even though you knew it wasn't, you know, NFL level or whatever, there was still a certain excitement because you're thinking, okay, this is professional. So maybe just maybe this is going to turn into something that's going to be a big deal. And yeah, like you were saying, especially when you're younger, you know, you're a lot more optimistic. You're not cynical about how businesses work. So, for example, when the World Football League came to Birmingham in 1974, I just assumed it was going to be there forever. You know, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind. I thought, okay, now we've got the AFL and the NFL have merged, and now we're going to have the WFL, and eventually the WFL and NFL champion will play in, you know, something, you know, the the World Series of football or whatever you would call, you know, something beyond the Super Bowl and the World Bowl. And, yeah, you just you get so caught up in it and it, and it becomes such a part of your identity because it's, you know, you're a kid and that's your team and your city and you just have a certain feeling of ownership towards it, or at least I did. All right. Well, we'll get into the football part in a minute, but but let's let's uh, I want to dive in a little bit further on the Birmingham thing, because and I think this is especially true in pro football, given how many challenger leagues there have been at least since, well, certainly since the 60s, right? Uh, and, and and going forward and continues to be, frankly, there are a couple of them still, you know, they're not dead yet, right? Uh, looking at you, XFL 2.0, um, right? But the, 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 um, the, the growing up in a uh, a major yet not major league, I guess, is maybe the sort of delicate way to sort of put it. City, metropolitan area such as Birmingham. Um, you know, I, and there are probably a few others. You, I, you probably throw San Antonio in there over time. I think you certainly could put uh, Columbus, Ohio over the years. Uh, there's just probably a, a handful of others. Uh, Orlando for many years until fairly recently. Um, this sort of... Um, it always, though, right, when these new challenger leagues, right, and I'm sure you didn't realize this until after you sort of uh, got older and could look back with some historical perspective. Um, it always seemed that Birmingham, especially on the football side, but, but you know, for example, the World Hockey Association, always there on that, hey, here's a fledgling and, and vibrant market that, that looks like it could support and is or hungry for possible pro sports. Um, and, and I got to think after a number of, you know, shots at the altar, so to speak, the, the, the metropolitan area, the sports fans around got to get sick and tired of it after a while, almost being sort of this go to, I wouldn't say Mark, right. But it, it becomes an interesting dynamic when teams and leagues come and go looking at Birmingham to start and be part of it. Right. And, and, and frankly, even with the AAF and, and the XFL. Right. Uh, I, I'm just curious as to, I guess, not having grown up there, what is this pro sports fans psyche like in the Birmingham metropolitan area, both around the time that you became interested and even now? Well, I think obviously originally with the WFL, people were excited and they thought that it could turn into something. And then when it folded, there was disappointment. And the next big league to come along was the USFL. And I think people still then thought, okay, the USFL is, which it, you know, I, I love the USFL. I thought it was a fantastic league. 
And it was, just like the WFL had aspired to be a major league, I think by its third year, especially, the USFL was a major league. It wasn't the NFL, but it certainly wasn't minor league football. I mean, it, it was excellent football. And so I think the city really, really got behind the Stallions just like they did the Birmingham Americans and the Birmingham Balkans. And then it folds. And the next thing to come to town is the World League of American Football. So you think, okay, we'll give it a chance because it's being underwritten by the NFL. I mean, we know that it's not aspiring to be a major league like the WFL or the USFL, but you know, these guys are going to go on and play in the NFL. The NFL is going to fund it. So this, you know, this is really going to develop legs. And of course it lasts what two years in the United States and it becomes NFL Europe. And I think after that, people in Birmingham started to think, getting back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, like, oh, you know, if another league comes along, they're going to get us and we're going to be in it. It's going to last a year and it's going to fold. And that's basically, you know, what's happened. I mean, with the exception of the CFL and, and the failed American experiment, every league that has come along has ended up dying and Birmingham's died along with it. So, you know, now I think the fans in, in Birmingham who still haven't completely given up, who aren't completely cynical or thinking, okay, the Rock bought the XFL. We had an XFL team once. You know, maybe, just maybe, if this comes back in 2021, 2022, or whenever, we'll get a team and maybe we'll support it. But but if you kind of look at attendance, especially going back to the last team we had, the Iron and the AAF, attendance was really poor for them. Now, a lot of that had to do with the fact that every game they played, it was just inclement weather. I mean, they just really... I mean, just bad luck every time they played a game. But beyond that, there just wasn't a lot of buzz. I mean, it was almost like people thought, well, here we go again, and it's fine and it's dandy, but we're not really going to get interested in it because it's probably not going to be here long. And no, it wasn't. I think the league lasted eight weeks before they folded. So I think now you're dealing with, with people who are a lot more cynical about it. And while – Certainly, if a team came along, I, I think at first they would show some interest. I don't think there's nearly that level of excitement that there was back in the 70s and the 80s with the with the WFL and the USFL. All right, so what is it about football, though, right? Because football, obviously, you know, is, is religion in Alabama and, and a number of other places, certainly in the South and Texas, et cetera. But, but obviously, a lot of that heritage, a lot of that passion, a lot of that uh, you know, history, right, is rooted at the collegiate level and arguably even in the, the high school's level, right? And I guess it's always sort of that, you know, there's a reason, right, why why every, you know, fledgling pro league has to at least take a look at Birmingham because it is such a fertile, uh, football-mad kind of uh, area, state, region, et cetera. But I guess the question in there is, the translation into the pro level, right? I mean, we'll always take a back seat to the Iron Bowl and all the other, you know, the UAB experiment and all, you know, the collegiate and, and high school level versus supporting a pro team or, or, or does it still have a fighting chance maybe? No. Yeah. I mean, I think college football regardless was always going to be number one. I think there was a chance with the Americans uh, because of the WFL season started in the middle of July and it ended late November, the championship game, first week in December. And, and two, they played weeknights. 
they had a TV game every Thursday night, but the other games were playing on Wednesday nights. So, you know, I thought that was pretty good marketing on their part because they weren't competing with the colleges at all. And and they did, you know, draw really good crowds for for a large period of time. But I think they also, I mean, I think everyone in Birmingham knew that if push came to shove, if it, if now not me, I would have watched the Americans over over Alabama or Auburn easily. But I was in the vast minority there. But I think most football fans in the state of Alabama, if they were Alabama and Auburn, you know, fans, they were going to watch them over any pro football team. So that's what was so good about the USFL playing in the spring. Again, there's no competition, and they really developed a, a pretty rabid fan base. But once you get to that overlap, and, and the and the worst example or the best example, depending on how you want to look at it, was the Canadian Football League because first uh, game they played in Birmingham, they drew nearly forty thousand, which you know by CFL standards is a pretty good crowd. Absolutely. But the minute the college football season started, attendance plummeted. I mean, and when I say plummeted, I mean Birmingham is drawing like six thousand and three thousand fans per game. People just absolutely gave up on it, and their owner at the time was trying to play a lot of games on Sunday which I think was smart because he thought, okay, we won't compete against Alabama and Auburn, but what he didn't realize, and I guess what I didn't realize either, is a lot of people who did like pro football, they were married to the NFL by then, and they were going to watch the NFL or the CFL, you know, 10 times out of 10. So that was just a real dramatic example of, of what happens to a team that's not only competing with the college game in the state of Alabama, but then a different style of football completing with a pro game. I mean, they didn't they didn't have a chance, and that was heartbreaking for me because I absolutely love the Canadian Football League. Yeah, we've had a couple of great conversations about sort of that experiment, especially the American, uh, 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 you know, uh, endeavor for a couple of years. Uh, and you know, obviously, it's a bit it's different. It's a faster game. It's only three down. I mean, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things going for it, the bigger field and all that kind of stuff. But I, look, I think that it, that issue of of dealing with uh, the NFL and the college game as the summer turns into autumn, right, is uh, actually something that even goes way back to the WFL days. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Americans and maybe even the Vulcans, the two versions, uh, even had to sort of deal with those issues back then too, right? The idea of not playing in direct competition with either of those two if they could help it. Yeah, the second year of the WFL, they tried it a little bit different in the sense that uh, they started the season a little later. They played a couple of exhibition games, and they started the season in August. But they did the thing where they were playing their games on Sunday. So they were competing against the against the NFL, obviously. But the big problem there, too, is there was no TV contract. So it's not like they were going to make any kind of money competing against the NFL on a network. And I think that's another reason they folded after 12 weeks. Um the, the crowds for the Vulcans were much, much smaller than they were for the Americans, largely for the for what you just mentioned. You know, all of a sudden, it's a lot closer, or, or it's bleeding into college football season, and on Sundays it's going head to head with the NFL, and that was that was a losing proposition, especially when the WFL came back that second year, and people were already thinking, well, this. This is a league that's lost so much money last year, and and there was no real reason to think it had a fighting chance. And it was it was almost an upset that they even came back for a second year. So there wasn't any real goodwill for the second season of the World Football League in '75. 
All right. Well, so tell me the impetus for for this book because it it, it in many respects feels a little bit uh, of a uh, sort of a personal journey and maybe cathartic at that. But it's also, it seems to me, a, a bit of uh, an admission, right? Uh, I, I call it from for my own personal reasons an illness or a uh, uh, <laughs> some, a distortion on reality. But um, but but I obviously I do say that tongue in cheek, right? But the, but the there is a sort of I don't want to call it perverse fascination, but it's it's certainly it's an interesting oddity, right? To latch on to, or maybe it's just simply observational, but I suspect it's not just that uh, of this sort of curious and unique. Uh, phenomenon, uh, this dynamic of uh, what you call off-brand football, right? I, there's a Birmingham component to that, but it's also larger than that. I, I guess the question in there is why the interest slash fascination uh, is it tied in with your your earliest memories of pro football, or is it is it is is it representative of maybe something else bigger, maybe? Well, you know, I, th- I think certainly that's how it started. Just, you know, being such a huge pro football fan as a kid and then to have a team of my own uh, and to go from, you know, when you had the, the Americans and the Balkans, which were both very good teams. And then when you had the Stallions, which by the second season and, and of course the third season, they played for the conference championship. Those were really good teams. And I think, you know, as far as my journey as a fan, those were the teams that I were that I was truly into. I mean, it was, I was a fan. I wasn't working in the newspaper business at the time. And so I could just devote all the time that a fan normally would to just being, you know, just a rabid supporter of these teams. But then if you jump to the world league of American football, by that time I am working as a newspaper writer. So, you know, I'm covering, I I mean, you know, you've learned to be objective. You've learned to go to games and, and, be dispassionate about what you're watching. So I still, you know, in my own time, I mean, I wanted to to succeed, but if you're in the press box, you're obviously not cheering for him. You're just covering it and and you're looking at it, you know, more from the standpoint of looking for a good story as opposed to looking for a, for a good game. And I, and I noticed that obviously by that point, I'm seeing things with a much more critical eye because I'm covering them, you know, and you're getting, a little bit more inside information and you do know it's a business and, and and all the naivete that you had years earlier as a young fan is is completely gone. But for whatever reason, anytime Birmingham got a football team, just bells and whistles went off in my head. It's like, Oh, this is, this is something that I have to spend a lot more time on than, than I probably should, you know, than that's probably healthy just because it interested me. And that's sort of what led to me writing the book, because I think my first thought was, you know, I could write just a basic bare bones history of pro football in Birmingham. And maybe a few people would like that because there are some some people who I mean, you can get on Facebook groups and see people who are absolutely obsessed with with the World Football League. But then I thought, you know, anybody could do that. I would kind of like to share my experience, not. I wanted to do a book that was not necessarily a history of the teams as much as it was my history with the teams. And so then it became fun that way because I could work some personal anecdotes and, you know, I went to a lot of games with my dad, my brother, and uh, I just kind of took it from the standpoint of being all, you know, wide eyed and, and looking at it in such wonder when you first start to by the end of it, it's like, well, Here's another one that didn't make it. So, 
you know, it's it, it is an, an obsession. I mean, and if another team comes along, whether it's the the new XFL or the the Freedom Football League that uh, Ricky Williams is trying to get off the ground, I'll be all over it. I mean, I will be, you know, I'll learn everything I possibly can about it for for better or worse, just because it's what I do. <laughs> the um, I, you've got to also though uh, sense. Uh, that the patterns right start to repeat themselves maybe like the watch outs and okay here's the league and you know where's the funding and who's the backers and where's the tv or i gotta think i'm at what point do you sort of like i i'm guessing that you you've built in some kind of a, a i don't know calloused checklist if you will of like uh oh here which boxes are these going to check or not check and, and what to look out for i mean you you're hinting for example the aaf ex, uh, experiment right i, I got to think that uh that you were probably you know uh quicker and savvier than most to know almost maybe exactly when this thing was not going to continue well let me tell you i mean i can answer that starting with the the xfl in 2001 within 2 weeks of when the team got up and running, I made sure to buy a hat and a T-shirt because I knew they would be collector's items. <laughs> and every team that they've had since then, that's the first thing I do. I did that with the Birmingham Iron, bought a hat and a T-shirt because I knew it wouldn't last. Now, I didn't think it was going to fold after eight games. I thought it would, it would at least you know make it through a season. But I know now when these teams come along, Unless unless they're playing in a league whose acronym is NFL, they're not going to make it. I mean, I just I would love to think there would come a time when a spring football league will will actually survive and thrive, but I just don't see it happening. I just don't think the infrastructure is ever going to be there. I don't think they're ever going to make enough money to stay in business long enough to become you know sustainable. So, yeah, I know going in now when Birmingham gets a team or Memphis gets a team or Orlando, some of these cities that you mentioned, kind of the the second tier cities, they're just they're not going to last. So you either have to enjoy it while they last or just go ahead and kind of make bets with yourself of how long it's going to make it. Because I know the before the pandemic, when the XFL started, um, I was on a radio show and the guy was asking me, you know, how long do you think the XFL will last? And I know that Vince McMahon had supposedly funded it for three years. And I think what I said was it'll make it through two full seasons before he realizes that he's never going to make his money back. And then he'll pull the plug. And I just think that's going to happen even with the new XFL. I mean, I, I love, I mean, I thought that, you know, from what I saw of the XFL last spring, I thought it was pretty good. You know, it was nice triple A football. I thought they had some innovative rules. But I just don't see how a league like that can make it three, five, seven years. You know, I just don't think it'll be sustained. What do you remember of those? Maybe you can kind of take us back to those first two WFL experiences. And, and you know, for, uh, the, the, the key asterisk for all of this is that the only, if you will, two champions, maybe champion and a half of the two versions of the WFL were the Birmingham teams, right? The Americans and then the Vulcans, right. right? The Vulcans, by virtue of their best record, there was no actual World Bowl or playoffs or, or conclusion of playoffs or whatever. Um, but what do you remember? Uh, is there anything vividly that uh, you remember about sort of 
how you went about finding out about this team and the game and going to Legion. I mean, you know, what what was the, do you have any rem- uh, remembrances or, or anything that sort of jogs the memory about sort of that, you know, pristine, uh, you know, exposure to this professional football thing for the first time? Oh, absolutely. And I, uh, I mentioned a lot of that in the book. Uh, when I found out about the World Football League, it was, it was in the winter of 1973. The, the league was formed, I think, October 2nd, 1973. And this was either like late, no- late November or early December. And it was just a newscast. Uh, you know, the local sportscast said that Birmingham had been, you know, granted a team in the World Football League. So, you know, I'm talking to my dad going, you know, what in the world's this? You know, this is, this is great. So, as soon as I heard that, I started reading the newspapers, you know, to, to keep track of who was in the league, who founded the league, you know, the other cities and all that. So, you know, I like to think as far as 13-year-olds go, by the time opening night rolled around on July 10th, 1974, I knew just about everything you could possibly know. And I went to that game. The, Birmingham hosted the Southern California Sun on July 10th, 1974, and I went with my dad and my brother. And I'd been to Legion Field before for college games, but obviously I'd never been to a pro game before. And that whole night, I mean, I can still close my eyes and just remember almost everything about it. You know, it was a it's a hot summer night, but you can, you know, smell the hot dogs and you've got the Coke sweating in your hands from those old little, you know, plastic cups. And just, uh, you know, I think the official crowd ended up being like 45,000. They announced that it was over 50, but it was a really big crowd. I think a lot bigger than than what people expected. And just uh, the funny thing, I think the coolest first memory I have is when the teams came out on the field for warm-ups, Southern Cal had magenta jerseys and orange pants, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. You know, that's about the most – 1970s thing you could ever possibly see and I thought oh man this is going to be a great league they're going to be colorful and it's going to be wide open just like the AFL and unfortunately that particular game even though Birmingham won it was very boring it was the final score was 11 to 7 Birmingham's only score came on a 50-yard interception return for a touchdown so their offense only generated a field goal so as far as being a wide open league that was not a good introduction to that sort of thing. But a couple of weeks later, they hosted Memphis and beat them 58 to 33, which is still one of the most fun football games I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the the teams combined for well over a thousand yards, total offense, whole bunch of penalties. You know, it was a real, uh, a real chippy game all the way around. And there were 63,000 people at Legion field for that. And it was just this great raucous crowd. And, you know, those are things that still, I mean, I, you know, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can remember being at the stadium and just the sounds and everything else. And and it's still just such a, a, a wonderful, vivid memory for me. And, and it was a little different with the Vulcans the next year because, you know, again, because of all the, the problems that uh, the WFL had gone through in its first year, but the Vulcans sold uh, public stock and my dad bought $25 worth of stock in the Vulcan. So I was really proud because I thought, well, Hey, we, we own this team. Of course, you know, I wasn't real proud after, <laughs> after it folded, but that was a pretty good feeling to be a, you know, to be a young teenager and think that you quote unquote own a football team. 
Well, it's probably a better souvenir than a T-shirt or a hat, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we had uh, one of our earliest uh, episodes a couple of years back was um, a really fun discussion with um, Howard Zuckerman, who was the director and producer of the TVS Television Network Games broadcast. Oh, nice. NFL. And just the stories there, I, it's it's our, for those who haven't listened to it, it's our episode number 26. It's, it's uh, you know, uh, there's there were, there were points during <clears throat> the first, I think it was the first season, because I don't think they had a, a TVS contract the second season, uh, where, you know, as the league, you know, was sort of week 10, week 11, where it was getting, you know, dicier and Houston was moving to Shreveport. I mean, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. They would they would basically be in this truck, you know, in the middle of the country, not knowing where they were going to go for the next couple of days to go to the next game. And and it was almost like spin the wheel as to where they were going to be heading next. But I, I got to feel that. Um, but yeah, you you look at some of those games that are actually, you know, on YouTube and and and, and elsewhere. Um, you know, the those cr- some of those crowds were just you know whether papered or otherwise, right? We're just you know, raucous and, and fun. And it was, it seemed like it was a real event. I mean, I think people also forget too. And, and I, I, this is the question, I guess, for you is how much about football did you, did you know about, you know, the rules and that kind of stuff? Or was, was it more the spectacle? I mean, I think for the, for fans, people don't recognize that uh, before the WFL, the, uh, the goalposts in the NFL were still at the goal line, right? And one of the innovations that the WFL brought to the to the table in 74 was moving those goalposts back to the back of the end zone. I suspect that uh, that that you have some some memories of that too. Do you remember though watching games on television as well? How else did you follow the team besides going to the games? Oh yeah, I did. Uh, you know, that game when Birmingham played Southern Cal, that was on Wednesday and their game of the week was on Thursday. And the first game of the week was uh, New York Stars at the Jacksonville Sharks. And I believe that game drew something like 60,000. So I remember watching that with my dad. And, you know, we were you're getting reports from around the league what the attendance was, like Philadelphia had this, this huge crowd and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, my dad's thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, it looks like people are, are, you know, really interested in this league. And, you know, maybe at the time because the NFL was – it was still preseason, of course, but they were on strike, so – you know, my dad was thinking, well, you know, maybe people are just kind of gravitating towards this league because they're playing and the other league may not. So, you know, this might be something that's that's going to work. So what I did, every game that was on Thursday night, I watched. I mean, it didn't matter who was playing. I was just, you know, completely obsessed with the league at this point. And, uh, you know, as far as Birmingham games, their road games, I would listen to on the radio and the games that they were playing at home that I couldn't make, I would listen to. So, and, and of course, I read everything you could possibly read about them in, in the two local papers. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I kept up, uh, especially early on, and, and when you were hearing about how great these crowds were, I, I think a lot of people were very positive. But then it was only like maybe five or six weeks into the season where you learned that they were papering the house, you know, all the the 60, 70,000 people that showed up in Philadelphia, you know, only like 5,000 paid for tickets. And, and when some of the financial shenanigans started coming out, you notice attendance was dropping, you know, pretty dramatically all around the league, even Birmingham. I mean, Birmingham, which, you know, I mentioned that Memphis game where they had 60,000 and they were regularly drawing 40 and 50,000. By the time they hosted the World Bowl for the league championship, they only had 30,000 there, which 
in another WFL city might be pretty good, but for Birmingham, I think that kind of showed that that people realized that the the WFL was was really not long for the football world. Well, look, and the IRS was uh, waiting for the game then to get to whatever collateral <laughs> yeah. they could. Confiscated but, their equipment. Yeah, it was amazing. But, but I mean, you know, the Americans, though. I mean, you know, besides being the the WFL champions, right? I mean, they they were undefeated at home. I mean, they were quite something. I mean, I what was it about this team that you could sort of piece together, maybe in in, uh, you know, in your rearview mirror that 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 made them stand out despite all of these crazy distractions, obstacles, and uh, other efforts to maybe undermine their success. Yeah, that's what was uh, so incredible about them because you know, they, they were undefeated at Leach to field and they started out the season 10 and 0 and except for, I mean, they had a couple of close calls, but at that point you think they're a juggernaut. I mean, they were just one of those teams that just had an ability, you know, they, they played um, the Chicago fire in a hurricane and beat them 41 to 40. I mean, it was just, they, you know, they just seem to have this ability to to rise to the occasion. And, and, you know, again, you're you're a young fan and you're looking at these guys as your heroes. And I'm automatically thinking, hey, this, this is one of the best football teams in the world. They could just walk into an NFL field and, and beat anybody. And of course, my dad said, son, no, that's that wouldn't happen. But I mean, if you want to believe it, that's fine. But, uh, you know, I, I just thought they were the best thing in the world. But then the funny thing is when you grow up in a state like Alabama where you root for Alabama or Auburn, you're used to teams, if they're having a good year, you want them to go undefeated. So Birmingham, I think their final record was 17-5. and They did win the championship, but the second half of the season, they kind of struggled. And the week after they beat Chicago to improve to, improve to a 10-0, and they played at Memphis and lost 46 to 7 and I remember just being dumbfounded and heartbroken thinking good grief how how did this happen they beat this team 58 to 33 in Birmingham and they can only score one touchdown just got absolutely blown out and they were real spotty the second half of the season but you know this was a league that played 20 regular season games uh, you know, injuries obviously were catching up with all the teams in the league at that point. And two, it's probably hard for a lot of guys to stay focused when they're not getting paid. And that was pretty much a common theme around the league. I know the the Florida Blazers, when they played in the WFL championship game, once they got to that game, they had gone three months without being paid, which is just, you know, unbelievable. When did you know as a 13-year-old self uh, that that things were a little fishy and or suspect and or were you just, you know, a blithe uh, or just unaware or not caring, frankly, about any of it and just you were just more interested in rooting for the team? Well, I was oblivious up until um, I I guess I don't know if it was when, when one of those franchises folded that kind of, you know, I thought, oh, you know, if, if a if a team in a big city like Detroit can't make it, that kind of worry worries me a little bit. And then when New York went to Charlotte, you know, I mean, they're the, you, you figure New York in any league is going to be the, the gold standard. They're going to be the bell cow, whatever that league is. And for them to move, that's when I, I really started worrying and thinking, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't as, as great as I thought it was, you know, maybe I need to go back and, 
and start cheering for the Jets again because I know the Jets are going to be here. You know, they're going to, they're going to be here forever. They might not be good, as we all know now, but they're going to be here. And so, I, yeah, I think late in the season, the reality set in. And then when the Vulcans started, when year two of the WFL started, I was kind of antsy about the whole season because they started with 11 teams and it was only two or three weeks into the season when Chicago folded. And I thought, well, if we're going to have a team fold this early in the season, uh, I don't really, really have high hopes for it making it you know, to a third season. And of course, as it turned out, they, they only made it through 12 games of, of that second season. Yeah, but that, that being said, I mean, in some respects, it's actually, besides winning the, the actual World Bowl and the playoffs and stuff, is that there's something to be said for actually having the staying power to stick around for the entire season. We had some great conversations with both, um, in separate conversations, Upton Bell, who was the guy responsible for bringing the New York Stars to Charlotte to become eventually the Hornets. Uh, oh, yeah. And a, 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 a just a hilarious conversation with John Sterling, uh, the New York Yankees longtime broadcaster who, you know, among other things, when he was, uh, you know, a young fledgling sports uh, play-by-play guy as well as uh, sports talk guy, uh, he was the voice of the New York Stars for the handful of games they played at, uh, well, on the road, but also Downing Stadium in New York and, and just the the ragtagness of, of that and the broadcast and not having a uh, an actual radio line, so they had to use the telephone for the first couple of games. I mean, I, you know, just uh, the, the, just the craziness. I mean, the fact that there, there almost ha- should have been an award for not only the team who who was the last team standing, shall we say, but who made it through all of that stuff right? for whatever reasons and despite all those obstacles. Uh, you know, comical, I guess. Uh, I, it probably wasn't comical at the time. No, but I mean, yeah, it's, uh, when you look back on it, I, and I think it was some documentary maybe that ESPN did where one of the team's buses broke down or something, and one of the players got off and he just started walking away from the bus, and, and one of the other guys says, hey, where are you going? He, he said, dude, I used to be on bubblegum cards. I'm not going to stick around for this, you know, Bush League stuff. And he just left the team, you know, right in the middle of a of a road trip. But, yeah, I mean, now when you can look back, I'm sure a lot of these players are, you know, think it is humorous now, but it it couldn't have been funny at all to go all those months getting beat up and and playing your heart out and not making any money at all. I mean, that was, um, you know, I don't think anybody, any player, especially those that jumped from the NFL to the WFL, expected that to happen to them, but it happened to an awful lot. As a fan, how how much did you uh, have hopes in the uh, reincarnated second version of the WFL that second year? Well, you know, I mean, the I think the the veneer had, had worn off a little bit in the sense that I knew it was a business and I knew that maybe it wasn't the most stable business in the world. So I tried to get, you know, especially when my dad bought the $25 worth of stock, I tried to get excited and I did get excited originally. I thought, well, you know, maybe because every they had the, the Hemeter plan where the players got paid a percentage of the gate and supposedly they uh, had all their financial ducks in a row and and they were going to be able to make payroll. And I thought, okay, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe if they can just get on their feet, get through this year, then, then they still have a chance to, to be a decent league. But even me by the second year, I knew that it wasn't the NFL. It would never be the NFL. You know, I just kind of hoped that it would hang around long enough that we're, I could still enjoy it. But again, as the season progressed, you just, you know, I was reading everything I possibly could about the league and the news was always bad. It seems like 
every Monday after a Sunday weekend of games, you'd read about, you know, the WFL is close to folding. So when it finally happened, it didn't surprise me. I mean, I was, I was pretty much braced for it. I wasn't, obviously I wasn't pleased, but I kind of, I kind of knew it was going to happen. And fortunately it happened after Birmingham beat Memphis 21 to nothing to sweep the series against them. And of course, you know, Birmingham and Memphis had a had a huge rivalry in that league. So you hated to see it end, but at least it ended on a on a good solid note for Birmingham. So let's fast forward to the eighties, right? And the USFL. Uh you know, you're a little older, a little wiser, maybe just started getting your, you know, sea legs in terms of maybe what you're gonna do for a career and 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 in sports and writing and all that stuff. What was different about the USFL this time, and and what what got you and or the the metro area excited about this? Because it seemed like, I guess, the USFL to your point, right? Pretty solid. Obviously, you know, taking advantage of of a spring time period and well funded at least, and it didn't seem to have those uh, you know uh, free ticket shenanigans going on. Um, what was different this time with the Stallions and the USFL in your mind back then and, and maybe in your retrospective view? Well, for me, when it started, um, you know, I was interested in it, but I wasn't obsessed with it originally like I was with the WFL because and this was 1983. I'm in college, um, University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, and our basketball program was really, really good at that time. So I was you know, the USFL season started in March and UAB was making a you know run towards the NCAA tournament. So I was really into college basketball at that point. So Birmingham's first games against the Michigan Panthers at Legion Field, it was it was a cold night. It was drizzly. I think there were 30,000 people. Birmingham loses nine to seven. Just was not a fun game, you know. So I went to it and I thought, well, you know, this looks like a pretty solid league, and I, I wish it well, but I'm just not sure how into it I'm going to be. But then as the season progressed, you know, when basketball season finally ended and we got into the summer, Birmingham was never a particularly good team that first season. I think they finished 9-9 nine and nine or something. But I was very impressed with the talent in the rest of the league, the players they'd sign, and just, you know, watching really high-quality professional football players you know, playing in the league. So I thought, well, this is a pretty good league. You know, I hope you, I mean, I hope, uh, I hope the Stallions can, can get better and be competitive. And, and maybe in 84, you know, I'll give them another shot. I went to maybe three games, I guess, in 83. But to start out in 84, they play the New Jersey Generals, you know, with Herschel Walker, Brian Sight. Uh, they lost, but there were, I think, 60,000 people at Legion Field for that one. And it really felt like a big-time atmosphere. I mean, I had the feeling, even though at that point in my life I had never been to an NFL game, that's what I imagined an NFL game feeling like. So it was almost – that was the day where I fell in love with the league more than I actually fell in love with the Birmingham Stallions. But that would come. I mean, the Stallions had a good second year, and they were very good in 85 – and it got to the point where uh, I knew that this was a, a very, very good league. And, and by the end of the third season, I think a team like the Baltimore Stars, which they were basically the best team in the league for, for most of the league's history, 
you know, I think they could have been an eight and eight team in the NFL. I mean, I'm, don't, I'm not saying they would make the playoffs or, or anything like that, but I think they could have, they were good enough to where they could have been competitive in the NFL. So I really loved what it was. I liked the fact that since I was a big NFL fan, that I could watch high quality football year round. Uh, I thought it was perfect. I thought, you know, not really getting to the inside of the financials of it. I thought this is, this is smart business because you've got TV contracts. You don't have to compete with the NFL, but what I never thought, and, and this is what you mentioned earlier, you know, you have the perspective of 30 years later. I mean, eventually there was going to be some sort of bidding war, you know, I mean, there already was, but, but if they tried, you know, to make a go of it in the spring, I just don't think they could have ended up outbidding the NFL. They they would have had to have, I think, dropped down to more of a triple A level and maybe develop some sort of relationship with the NFL. I, I mean, I'd like to think that's not the case. I would love to think that had they not, you know, done the fall thing, that they would still exist and, and be a, a great league. But I just, you know, you, you were dealing with 50 professional football teams and, and the NFL, they kind of, already litigated that with the merger with the AFL and, and just competing with them over time. I just didn't think, you know, would ever work. And then, then the whole fall thing where they were going to have eight teams in 1986. And uh, even if they'd won the lawsuit, I just don't think that would have, uh, well, they did win the lawsuit, but even if they got substantial money from the lawsuit, I just don't think they would have survived. So that was disappointing. When, when I found out they were going to the fall, I thought, well, That'll be the end of the USFL. So here's another one that'll break my heart. What was I, I remind me if where the Birmingham ownership was in the battle royale between Donald Trump and his troops and Tim Bassett and I'm sorry, John Bassett and uh, and his troops sort of on the sort of to go fall or not go fall. Were, were they which camp were they in? Do you know? I, yeah, I think I think Birmingham was still in the spring camp because I think they knew if you went to the fall, kind of like what we talked about earlier, you're going to be competing against Alabama and Auburn. And, and, and I think they liked the fact that they had developed a very good following, especially in 84 and 85. And it just made more financial sense for them. And I think they also thought that, okay, this whole fall thing is really not about actually establishing a fall season. It's about creating a limited merger. And I think Birmingham knew that if there was a limited merger, they wouldn't be part of it. So yeah, I think they wanted to stay in the spring, and uh, and you know they were, you know, one of the better franchises attendance wise. I mean, it was. I know being out there when it's ninety five degrees on a summer day and loving it just because it was good quality football, and uh, I I think they didn't want to want to risk what would have happened if they had you know played their game because they actually even had a 1986 schedule when they were, you know, before they, they disbanded and they had a game like on Christmas day, they had a few games on Saturday, which would have, you know, competed directly with Alabama and Auburn. It just wouldn't have worked. It would have been disaster for them if they tried to play in the fall. All right. Let's then uh, round the corner here and get into the nineties, because this is also around the time where you're uh, you know, you're, you're getting paid for a living to cover sports, and some of it uh, even in the Birmingham area, uh, and some of these uh, these teams that 
through the 90s, right, including all the way up to, to 2001, you, you had uh, three franchises with all with unique sort of circumstances and situations. I mean, you alluded to them before, the fire of the World League of American Football. They're interesting scenarios there. The Barracudas, part of the CFL American exploration experiment, I guess you could call it. And then, uh, you know, into the in 2001, this, I don't even know if it was football, right? And you look back at it, the original <laughs> version of the XFL. Birmingham, once again, showing itself as being a football town. Um, but I, I don't know, people perhaps thinking that, I don't know, Birmingham is either a mark or, or, or just, you know, rubes, you know, just waiting to be, they'll take anything, you know, pro football. I, what's the dynamic of all of these that you, you know, maybe in your professional lens for the first time, uh, I'm guessing the jaded radar is, is much more, um, sharp and, uh, uh, well-tuned to these things. Yeah, it, it was. Now, now, admittedly, with the World League, uh, just cons- you know, considering it was basically an NFL farm league, I thought, okay, this has a chance. And it just depends on if fans are going to be okay with watching minor league football in the spring, because that's what it is. I mean, they're not pretending to try to go after the best players. I mean, what their entire purpose is to get players ready to play in the NFL. So I thought, okay, you know, maybe if they do this right, uh, they've got a shot. You know, this this international thing, I knew that just with travel and everything, that seemed kind of clunky, especially the first season. But I thought, you know, if the NFL is funding it, they've got all the money they need, so they can make it work. But my main issue was was not the fact that it was AAA football, but from the standpoint of the Birmingham Fire, the team I was covering, they were boring. I mean, it was just boring football. Uh, the, the first game they played at Le- the season opener was against Montreal at Legion Field, and they had over fifty thousand. I mean, great crowd. And Birmingham lost twenty to five. They generate a field goal and a safety. And just throughout that season, they just had a terrible offense, and they were just, you know, at, at this point, covering a game, you know, it's no big deal. I mean, you're going to write a story regardless of what the score is, so that's not an issue. But when I would step back and think, okay, as a fan, what do I think of this? And as a fan, I didn't think much of it. It just, again, it just bored me. And whereas when you had the WFL and the USFL, if there was a TV game and I was off or whatever, I would be watching one of those games. That wasn't the case with World League. I mean, I just, I just basically stayed away from it because I, I didn't really care anything about it. And then you know, in, in year three, when they decided to move everything to Europe, obviously you feel bad for the people stateside that have lost their jobs. But as far as losing the fire from a fan standpoint, it didn't really bother me. I mean, because I had already, I was basically at that point watching them because I had to, and not necessarily watching them because I wanted to. Um, so that was, they started in 91, so they, they lasted a couple of seasons. CFL team comes in 95. I mentioned earlier, I love the CFL, but I knew pretty quickly that I was in a very small group of, of people in the state of Alabama that really liked the CFL. So I was pretty – and I feel bad about this because I should have vetted it better. I shouldn't have been so naive. I just kind of assumed since the CFL had been around for years – 
I just kind of thought that eventually this was going to become like the North American Football League, and they would have 10 Canadian franchises and 10 U.S.-based franchises. And it wouldn't be the NFL, but it would be a nice secondary league and perfect for someone like me that just likes the gameplay. But as I mentioned, that that whole season was just a disaster. Not, I mean, Birmingham was a decent team. They made the playoffs. They got destroyed in the first round. But they had some exciting games and, and you know, played some pretty good football. But people didn't care. So when you're at Legion Field and you look around and you see that there's only five, 6,000 people there, you pretty much know that they're not going to be around. And, and as a matter of fact, their owner, uh, he was saying like midway through the season that if, you know, if the crowds didn't pick up, he was going to move the team. So I think people, most people had bailed on him anyway at that point. But by then, I th- think they thought, okay, if you want to move them, move them because you know, we don't want to watch them anyway. And then when you go to the XFL in 2001, that was Actually, before we go to the XFL, I, I have one question on, on the Barracudas situation. Sure. Do, you, do you remember anything about, I'm just curious as to how Birmingham, uh, excuse me, uh, Legion Field got retrofitted to accommodate that larger field and that, that extended uh, end zone and, and like, was it, was there any cosmetic or, or constructional construction, I don't know if it's the word, but was there any retrofitting that needed to be done at the stadium? Was it was it difficult to squeeze it in? Because I know it was a challenge for some other uh, stadia in the United States when, when teams came calling. Yeah, it was almost like uh, baseball parks with, with different dimensions of the outfield because because uh, Birmingham, uh, the width of the field, 65 yards, they didn't have an issue with, but they did have an issue with end zones. And it seems like, oh, well, I don't have it in front of me, but it seems like the end zones in, at Legion Field were only like 15 yards deep instead of 20. I mean, it, so it, it didn't it didn't actually meet CFL specs, but that was just, I guess, the, they decided, well, if you can't do it, you can't do it. You know, we can't because there was there was concrete, so they weren't going to knock that out at, at Legion Field and take seats away from games involving, you know, Alabama or whatever. See, that, so that, that part, yeah, that that part, was weird. Yeah, that part's really interesting to me, right, because the compromises made – to get a team into a particular city, you know, despite and and making accommodations, if you will, I you know I, I guess on one level it's inventive, not unlike baseball, different parks and whatever. But you know, f- football is a gridiron, and you know, supposedly it's supposed to be uniform regardless of where you go, right? CFL or otherwise. Well, and that's what bothered me because that was a, that was another charm for me of the CFL. I love the twenty yard end zone. I love the fact that you could throw a deep pass from the five yard line, you know for on a 20-yard end zone and to have it 13 yards or whatever it was, I can't remember the specs now, was just was odd for me. I mean, once the game started, I didn't really think about it. But, you know, I always thought, well, you know, what happens if if they get into a playoff, if they get to host a playoff game against a team that's played on a regulation field the whole year and that's part of their offense and now all of a sudden, you know, they call a – a 15-yard pass from the two-yard line, and they only have a 13-yard end zone to work with. I, I thought that was odd, but that was, you know, one of those things that I, I got over pretty quickly because I was just so thrilled that Birmingham had a team in the CFL, which was, which was a league I loved. And but again, stupid me, you know, I just assumed that that this was going to be a team that was going to last because it was in a stable league, but. I didn't realize that the whole American experiment was as unstable as it was. 
All right, and then tell me about this XFL 2001 version. At what point did you know that this was not going to be, I don't know, even football perhaps, or, or did it take a game or two? Well, no, it just, the big problem I had, I mean, they kind of, they sort of rushed it to market in terms, you know, they had the, I think a training camp in Orlando and then like three weeks later, teams are playing games. So, so teams didn't even get really in game shape until the season was almost over. It was only a 10 game season anyway, but the first game at Legion field, Birmingham played Memphis. Um, it was just, I mean, yeah, it was football. It played by football rules, but there was so much WWE-style crap going on around it. It was just a real turnoff for me. You know, they had the big screens out where you had the wrestlers would come out and basically diss the NFL. You know, the NFL's made up of a bunch of candies. I'm thinking, really? Really, you've got basically double-A minor league football here, and instead of, you know, maybe – working with with the NFL, you're going to go ahead and, and have an adversarial relationship with them. And it just, it was a turnoff for me because it was just everything about it. I mean, the, the telecasts were real uh, sleazy, just misogynistic. And I, I just, I just didn't like the product at all. And what made matters worse for me from the standpoint of being a newspaper person, the, the Birmingham Bolts were awful. I think they finished two and eight. And that was kind of – they drew well the, the first game. I think they had 35,000, 38,000, something like that. But then attendance just fell off. And, and if I'm not mistaken, by the end of the year, they had the worst attendance of any team in the league. And that was really a first for Birmingham because Birmingham could always take pride in being among the top uh, cities as far as attendance. But that wasn't the case in the, in the XFL. And – and I, you know, it probably wasn't so much all the WWE influences. It was the fact that Birmingham just simply was not a good football team. They got, they didn't play good football. They got beat pretty soundly, and it just, it was not a fun experience. All right. Well, let me let me ask you this one last question, and I can go on for at least four hours with more stuff. Um, and maybe we'll find an excuse to do it again on some other tangents, either specifically or. Or, or generally around all of this, um, you, uh, you. There's a piece on on your um, on your awesome blog, by the way. It's a, and we'll we'll certainly promote it uh, during the course of uh, the uh, the preview and the post roll for for this show. But it's Adam AdamsonMedia.com. Um, there's uh, I, and I guess this sort of uh, encapsulates, I guess, a, a big question that I still have here in all this, and that's uh, Legion Field. Uh, it's been there for. I don't know. Seemingly, since I if since football was a thing, right? Uh, I guess in, in lore, it's been there forever. Uh, is it called the Gray Lady? I don't know. It always looks gray to me on television. Um, yeah, it's the old Gray Lady. That was that's one of its many nicknames. Okay, so so give me a sense. So the the con the theme are, through all of these teams that we've been talking about is it's always been at Legion Field. Now, um, I, I'm sure it's been upgraded. Uh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure the UAB football program now that it's back and. And and frankly, more vibrant than ever. Although that's uh, that's saying something in the in the COVID years. But obviously, you know, uh, obviously it did have its death's doorstep for for a moment in time a couple of years back. Um, what is the state of that of that stadium? Is is it has has its time is its charm sort of waned in the midst of what I guess are more modern uh, amenities that 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 modern 
big stadia, you know, are, are, are you know, even my, minor league baseball and, and major league soccer, right, all have these, you know, brand new shiny stadiums with all the latest amenities and stuff. But yet here is a is a is a, a venerable stadium with lots of rich history. Uh, I'm sure has been upgraded to a certain extent, but is still, uh, you know, probably far from the most, uh, uh, you know, modern, sleek and, uh, uh, you know, uh, amenity filled uh, arenas out there. Um, helpful, hurtful, does it matter? Um, and Legion Field generally, what, I mean, give me a sense of, of its place in Birmingham sports stature as well as maybe part of its future as being a home for a football team. Is it past its prime for such? It, it is. I mean, it's basically uh, reach museum status because uh, UAB is playing their final season there this year. Next, next year, um, there's a new downtown stadium that'll be completed, which it's called Protective Stadium. I and did not it seats know that. Forty-five thousand. Yeah. So, so Legion Field, as far as big ticket items, this is probably it for it this season. I mean, there may be, you know, high school games played there, uh, or some small colleges game, small college games played there occasionally. But as far as its time in the sun, this year is it. When UAB's done there. Uh, you know they'll never come back. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the the bowl game that Birmingham has is going to move to Protective Stadium. And you know, for me, I love Legion Field. I mean, just from the nostalgia standpoint. But I mean, this was a stadium that seated eighty thousand up into the '90s, and then it got some. Uh, there were some structural issues, so they had to remove the entire upper deck, and they basically just plastered it and plastered it and plastered it. I mean, if if you look at it on TV, it looks fine, but it's the last time I was there, I guess, was, was for the Birmingham Iron Game in, in 2019. And just if you're walking, you know, in the bowels of the stadium, it's just so antiquated now. And it's, you know, I, I would hope, I would love to see it still get some use, but I would more than that like to see it literally turned into a museum, you know, just redone to where it's got the history of, you know, Birmingham sports, you know, from Alabama and Auburn to everything else, because I would hate to see it demolished because it's so much a part of the history. But in terms of being uh, a viable stadium, yeah, it's time has passed. And then and it's, it's going to be kind of sad for me next year as, as a UAB alum. I mean, I'll be very excited to see them move into a new stadium but it's also going to be sad that Legion Field is, is for the most part, just going to be sitting dormant. Do we know if the um, uh, the Birmingham Bowl, I guess now it's this year, it's, well, supposedly all the bowl games are going to still go on. Okay, that's another issue for another day. We could talk about that in the weeks to come. We'll see. But I guess it's called now the official, officially the Ticket Smarter Birmingham Bowl. Is it going to be, is it one last uh, uh, swan song in uh in the uh, the venerable old stadium, or is it is that actually going to be the first of the new? No, that yeah, that'll be the swan song for Legion Field because I believe the target date for pro, uh, progressive or protective stadium rather is like late August 2021. So UAB will be the I, I guess there could be a high school game there, but I'm assuming UAB will probably be the first game to be played at that stadium. But 
Yeah, I think the last major, if you want to count that bowl as major, I guess the last major event to be played at Legion Field will be that that uh, that bowl game. So maybe so. there's maybe there's a silver lining then here. So let let me so let's maybe end where we kind of started. So you you talk about the Birmingham Iron and the and the ill-fated AAF and and we've had a couple of interesting conversations about that. I'd love to get Charlie Ebersol at some point once he's over all of this. It may take a little <laughs> bit more time. But do you think then a, a, a the a, a, and assuming things come together, a reconstituted XFL might give an, another or a, a completely new and separate look to Birmingham, especially now that there's a brand new stadium in the mix. You know, on the I mean, I think it would make perfect sense if you looked if you looked at what the original XFL did because they kind of mixed in major markets, mid markets like Birmingham and Memphis. But in the reboot in the rebooted version, they were all major markets. I think the only non NFL cities were. Um, or the only non-NFL city maybe was St. Louis, which of course was a very recent NFL city. But it seems like they were targeting, uh, you know, NFL markets. So I'm not really sure what's going to change, you know, with with the new ownership group. I mean, I don't know if they want to try to reboot the eight franchises that are the eight. It's not a franchise; it's a single entity league. But I don't know if they're going to try to reboot the eight teams that played this year or or what their plan is but getting back to what sort of the theme of what we've talked about the whole night if they do decide to go to a second tier market you always have to think that birmingham and memphis are going to be right there at the top and i do think that would be helpful to know that they would be playing in a forty-five thousand seat stadium which even if you draw fifteen or 20,000 people, that's going to look a lot better in a 45,000-seat stadium than 72,000-seat Legion Field. So, yeah, I mean, I think any time a league comes along and they're going to move beyond just major markets, Birmingham is still going to get a look just because of its history. Yeah, and I think Major League Soccer has, has either uh, consciously or unwittingly sort of created you know, a more reasonable – uh, you know, arena footprint expectation, right? Even to the point where it became the place for the DC team in the XFL, right? It was it was twenty two thousand seats, a lot easier to fill and a lot more intimate, if you will. And you know, arguably, this new stadium in Birmingham would sort of fit that bill, obviously a little bit larger. But you know, I you know, remember, right? St. Louis in the in the uh, second version of the XFL was arguably the most uh, uh, successful or certainly they didn't even get to that their their last game uh, where they were going to sell, I think, 40,000 seats for that game. That was their next home game. And if I, if memory serves the AAF, I mean, San Antonio, um, you know, itself, not a, a pro uh, uh, football uh, city itself was doing quite well on, at the gate and was arguably the, the most supported team uh, on that front. So, you know, it, and, you know, there's also a little bit of, you know, Lucy with the football with Charlie Brown here, right? And exactly. I, I, you know, I wonder, too, I mean, I guess there's all of that sort of, all that history comes back down to this point, right? Does a Birmingham want another go at a professional football kind of thing? I mean, will it always be sort of this curiosity and this appetite and this, of course, Birmingham is the 
biggest and strongest market without an NFL or without a professional football team and, and will always be on that short list? Or is there a point at where it just, it's no mas? Yeah, you know, I honestly believe now, and, and again, most of it is just just me, you know, being an, an older guy who's seen all these teams, but I do think it has waned. I, I, and I think a lot of it is not just the fact that Birmingham has had so many teams and so many different leagues that's failed, but I think maybe just generally football. I'm not sure football is is America's passion like it once was. Uh, and But beyond that, I mean, you can get up on Saturday morning in the fall starting at 11 a.m. and literally watch football past midnight. You got all the football you want on Sunday, Monday night football, Thursday night football. There's a bunch of football packed into six months. Too much, right? And then when you get – yeah, I mean, you can't watch all of it. And then if you do, you're, you're crazed to try and watch all of it. But then, like – for me now, even as much as I love the USFL and, and you know, watched a few XFL games because, again, I like the rules and whatever, I'm kind of fatigued. I mean, after the Super Bowl, I really don't mind taking a break from football. I don't mind concentrating on basketball and, and getting ready for, for baseball. And a weird thing for me, one of my new kinks that started a couple of years ago is Major League Rugby. That's kind of something that I've started enjoying in, in the spring. So – if there's an XFL game versus a Major League Rugby game, probably eight times, nine times out of ten, I'm going to watch an MLR game, which I've, you know, the me of 20 years ago would have slapped the me of now for even suggesting something like that. But, you know, my tastes have changed. I've just, I don't know if uh, maybe it is football fatigue or maybe it's just I finally accepted that sports have have seasons for, you know, there's a reason for it. And and maybe it's just good to kind of step back after the first Sunday in February and, and not worry about football again until August. Yeah. And, and we look, we've, uh, we've certainly uh, uh, been, you know, sort of around uh, some of the other issues extant in and around football, right? Uh, the, the health issues and the CTR and, 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 uh, and then we're not even talking about see, COVID and, and what what a a large gathering of fans looks like in in the years to come. Um, but yeah, I, and it's also too this also frankly just a wellspring of uh, I would call them alternate sports anymore, right? I mean, it doesn't take much to get a league off the ground, cable television, whatever. I mean, there's lots of different. Uh, you're mentioning rugby. There's there's clearly a whole bunch of of other efforts with Premier League lacrosse, right? Uh, there's all kinds of. Uh, of things. And it's kind of the best of times and the, and the, maybe the worst of times, because it's just so much to choose from. I don't know. Maybe there's also a reset, frankly, as we try to navigate through and see what the other end of this COVID-19 thing looks like. Um, I think it's really going to reset a lot of people's uh, business models and perhaps even expectations about what quote unquote pro sports looks like, especially the in-person component of it. Uh, and I think, frankly, there's nobody you know, I think a lot of people think the mighty NFL is, um, you know, uh, is impervious to this. But as we record this today, right, the first two teams are already starting to self-quarantine in the NFL as as some of the first positivities uh, actually start to uh, to come to that league, too. And, uh, you know, you throw in all the other stuff that the NFL has been dealing with in terms of, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the way uh, – you know, some previous players have been uh, experiencing health issues and, and all of that. 
I don't know. It just seems to me that every sport, football included, is going to have to rethink and reset a bit. Um, I, I was even arguing that, you know, prior to all this starting, I mean, Major League Soccer, I'm the biggest soccer fan you're going to find. Uh, but, you know, 30 teams, maybe going on 32 in the major. I mean, how much, right? How what, Where's the saturation point? And, you know, you throw in all these current issues. I don't know. You wonder if if um, if there isn't a bit of a reset uh, in our future for for pro sports here. Yeah, that's what uh, I mean. Obviously, we have no idea. But, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, what's what's attendance going to be like in the future? I know me personally. I mean, it's it's going to be a long time before I'm going to have any desire to get into a stadium again. I mean, that's just just me. But I mean, I think there are a lot of people that are going to approach this in different ways. And, and you know, when when the world begins again, so to speak, it's going to be really interesting or in, it's just going to be odd to to see what it's going to be like, because it's not I don't think it's going to be the same. I mean, I'd like to think that you could close your eyes and a year from now, everything's back to normal. But. I think that's being naive. I don't think it will be. And 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 you're right. I mean, you know, the, the it's going to be a reset, and and what's going to happen then? You know, how's how is everything going to shake out because of so many different sports, so many different things going on? Something's going to have to fall to the wayside, you know. And, and what is that something going to be? All right, time to promote. Uh, tell us, uh, tell our audience how we can follow you, read you, and then of course specifically the book. Uh, okay, it's adamsonmedia.com. That's where I have all my short stuff, mostly columns, a little humor, mostly sports. Uh, and uh, Twitter, at AdamsonSL. And basically on Twitter, I just promote my columns and do stupid stuff. And the name of the book is The Home Team, My Bromance with Off-Brand Football. Uh, it's published through Burnaby Books. You can also get it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. So it's, I think... You know, obviously it is kind of niche in the sense that it's related to Birmingham, but I think it is relatable for for anyone who's lived in cities who've who've looked up and seen these teams and leagues come and go. I think it's it's pretty relatable there. No, I I, I need to correct you. This is not niche. This is mainstream for this show <laughs> and for our listeners. And and you will be pleasantly surprised at how many other uh, folks out there just find all of this all this stuff fascinating, whether, you know, I, I don't think it's Birmingham specific. You may feel it is. And I think, frankly, a lot of the story necessarily is, but it's actually a bigger story, right? It's much, it's, we, and some of the themes that we've talked about, right? I, I think it's, it's great. I, I, I encourage your, our, our listeners to uh, buy uh, copies early and often. And I guess I'll, I'll leave you with this one last question. Um, you know, I, I, as I see on your website, there's some great uh, NASL soccer stuff there on your walls. And I got to think there's some other uh, perhaps books or projects beyond your blog writing that uh, maybe you have sort of in your internal shoot for uh, for future endeavors. Or am I uh, am I projecting? No, no, you're not. You're you're absolutely right. I'm actually um, working with a soccer coach right now. I'm helping uh, write his autobiography. It's Preston Goldfarb, who uh, he started the soccer program at Birmingham so uh, Southern College, and he's kind of a, a legend in the Southeast as far as uh, being a real soccer patron. So I'm I'm working with him right now. Uh, it's basically his book. I'm just helping him with it. But it's being a big soccer nerd like I am. It's just thrilling to hear all these insider stories, you know, dating back from his college days as a coach, and he also coached in the. USISL, the Birmingham Grasshoppers, and that was one of the first 
quote unquote local soccer teams that I followed. So that's kind of a labor of love for me to just help him with that. It's just a, a good chance for me to get a lot of inside info on soccer, which I'm as much as I love Birmingham pro football, I really, really love soccer. So any chance I have to write about it, I, I jump on that opportunity. All right, our thanks to Scott. Let's see now. Uh, Scott's multiple blogs can be found on adamsonmedia.com. A-D-A-M-S-O-N media, adamsonmedia.com. Great stuff. Follow, you can uh, you send your email in there and get uh, all his latest postings and stuff. And it's not just football, but uh, soccer, uh, other sports generally, uh, other random musings. It's uh, it's a hoot. Great stuff and some great imagery from his uh, his. His lair, his sports uh, uh, man cave, I guess, uh, with the great stuff uh, you'll see on his walls. I'm jealous about some of those uh, some of those uh, hangings that he's got there. Uh, the name of the book uh, that you want to get, it's called The Home Team, My Bromance with Off-Brand Football. It is published by Burnaby Books. Uh, you can find a link uh, to that book uh, from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just uh, search up this episode with Scott and uh, just click on that link. Uh, it'll whisk you away to either Amazon or a few other places. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you could also buy it directly from uh, Scott's website, too. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. And you can follow him on Twitter at Adamson, S as in Sam L, Adamson, S-L, uh, on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, so multiple ways to follow Scott, multiple ways to follow us, goodseatstillavailable.com, our website, of course. All the episodes from uh, from current and past uh, available for you to stream, to download, to uh, do whatever. Uh, follow us, of course, or, or, or subscribe to us. That's the easiest way. Why not? On your favorite podcatcher. Uh, we're just about uh, on every one known to man and woman. Uh, just search up Good Seats Still Available and just add us to your subscription list. Why not? How about uh, a few uh, five-star reviews Why not? while you're at it? Uh, we'd appreciate that, too. Uh, let's see. You can follow us on social media. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And of course, on Facebook, there's a little page devoted to us there as well. Uh, send us some email. Why don't you directly go ahead? Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, let's see. You can also join our email newsletter. Uh, we send it out uh, e- each weekend to kind of give you a head start on what uh, each. Uh, episode is going to be uh, just search up uh, that little box there uh, on our website and uh, just enter in your email address and uh, we will add you to the party to the list our thanks of course to jerry Payne. thank you very much for your help sir as always jerry Payne audio excellence and thank you kind listener uh, for uh, giving us uh, a little uh, hour or so of your time and uh, we appreciate your listening your support Uh, all your incoming email, and uh, we appreciate it to no end. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Until then, take care. Please be safe, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.